1: Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We have we have the impeachment trial uh, still underway. We're, I guess, two of three days into the That's right. prosecutor's presentation of the case.
2: Long nights, some uh, long days. Oh, it's, almost cra- through it.
1: it's almost crazy to think about what it would have been like if they would have kept to that back-to-back yeah, totally. 12-hour I mean, days. It would have been up until like 2 in the morning every night obviously, instead of just one night. Yeah, because obviously 12 hours is not what tw- just twelve hours. Exactly. It'd there's some like breaks and there's some fifteen kind of hours delay. or yeah. something like well, that.
3: Plus, you can't even start until the afternoon. Right. because of Don Roberts sketch, So yeah,
2: right. Is that actually why they're? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. It's like morning, like arguments in the morning, and then impeachment at, in the afternoon.
1: Oh, I didn't. I, I. I. didn't. I didn't realize that. Yeah,
2: like on Tuesday night uh, when when it went until about two in the morning when the rules resolution was finally passed, right. Roberts had to be in court at 10 the next morning for like to hear a case. It's funny because at first I, at first I thought, uh, Kate, you were
1: saying kind of like, you know he's not going to change his schedule he's got <laughs> he golf or something in,
3: so. yeah exactly no he's
1: so, doing double duty so yeah okay that's that's legit but i almost kind of think like all right supreme court like you're pretty important but like maybe shift it around that's a little what bit i'm
3: saying it's like they only hear like so many cases a year take two weeks off yeah, you know exactly. it's fine <laughs> exactly it's yeah. a little
1: ridiculous uh all right well we have a a a, a very special episode uh in for this episode. Before we get to all that uh, awesomeness, let me quickly update you or not update you. Remind, remind you. you, yeah, that, that uh the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Uh do you love saving you know, here's you know, we saw this after the last episode. Where we discussed, like you know, coffee shops. Why are there coffee shops? You should be, you should be buying uh, exclusively Grady's. Yeah, yeah, exclusively Grady's, and it's you know, we're, as we're going to discuss, you save money, uh, you know, Grady's, and it's better than whatever you're having at your local coffee shop. There was someone on Twitter who wrote in like heartbroken. I, I don't know if if she owns a coffee shop or is just like coffee shop adjacent but like felt betrayed right that, that uh, we've come out and, and, and said how uh, I every, just you know, you know coffee I've, shops are evil
2: I've I'm not against coffee shops. I think I was playing it up just a little yeah, bit last yeah. week, but um, I guess I was. We just to have solve. to ride for Grady, you know? How yeah, can exactly. We, how can exactly. We not? It's
3: just New exactly. York coffee shops. I'm sorry, it's a stressful experience. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That true. That's true.
1: So, uh, along those lines, do you love to save a buck by skipping the coffee shop? Of course you do. Of course you. Do. We've already we've already discussed how how. Uh, uh, you don't know, you know you do you do not want to be in a coffee shop. So so is Grady's cold brew. Grady, Grady's cold brew is also against coffee shops. You asked and they delivered brew it yourself with Grady's New Orleans style coarse Ground coffee blend designed to work in any cold or hot coffee maker. One bag makes 24 servings of Grady's Cold Brew exactly the way you want it. You can order it online and receive 16 ounces of their famous blend of 100% Arabica beans and French chicory in a resealable pouch for long lasting freshness. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And if you're just like, you know, you don't have it and you, you know, it would be that or go to the coffee shop or you need it right away, you can order it on amazon.com for next day delivery. If you need to help Jeff Bezos in his moment
2: of, of need after his yeah, phone
1: was Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, him. so, so today we have uh, our, our, our normal hosts and we have a special guest, uh, my friend Carrie Antholis, who, uh, hey, Hi, Josh. Hey, what's up?
0: I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. Well,
1: so, so uh, we, you and I have been, I guess we've. I've been friends for like a decade, maybe upwards of a decade. Yep. Um, and uh, now we have we are we are uh, collaborating on crime story, which for for readers of the site um, is is uh, TPM is sort of playing an incubator role in in the launch of this new uh, site crime story and you can actually see it if you if you know as I said if you're a TPM reader uh, you see a little section of of the front page that has uh, stories from crime story so we're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna talk about that and but we're also gonna talk about uh, the the news and the impeachment trial and some stuff about Bill Barr and a, and a lot of stuff because what what Carrie is doing with crime story is, Looking at, we, we know about the sort of the true crime thing, right? That, that thing in popular culture and media and entertainment, true crime. Um, and it's a whole spectrum of stuff from sort of like highbrow to lowbrow. Um, and we also have at the same time the politics of crime and justice have transformed in recent years um people uh carry and, and my age it used to be for ages in the public political discourse the only discussion of crime is are you tough on crime or extremely tough on crime or <laughs> or like or being tough on crime isn't you know so that that's the whole thing and in the last few years uh that has changed uh, significantly and we have a we have a whole public conversation about a concept that didn't even used to exist: mass incarceration, and it's th- this. This is, and you you also have um, around the country now the, the uh, election of what's Krasner's first name?
0: Paul? Larry, uh, Larry, Larry. Larry Krasner. Krasner right.
1: Yeah. Uh One of the f- one of the first high profile examples of this was in Philadelphia two years ago, I think. Um, and it's and it's sort of bubbling around the country, where you have uh, uh, progressive, uh, yeah, progress, basically progressive DAs, um, people who are getting elected district attorneys on a platform of of dramatic change in how we approach law enforcement and crime and and rehabilitation and and all these things. So, and and now maybe you know this has been bubbling sort of on the on the progressive left but it is true that there's even a a kind of a wing of this movement on the right at least uh on the libertarian right yeah on on the on the libertarian right and I think that there's um you know at least some recognition around uh law enforcement about 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 drugs um, some recognition that like okay you know it it's at the, there's just too many people in prison. It's and 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 I think Carrie, you're right. It's it's uh, on the on the libertarian right because both libertarian in the sense of just we got too many people in prison, too much you know too too much power of you know kind of incarcerating power of the state. And there's also a kind of a part of this that is about just money. Mm-hmm. We spend a massive amount of money incarcerating so many people. So what Carrie is doing um, with Crime Story is kind of. Try to fuse these two things yep. that don't often get seen as uh, it, it, they often kind of exist separately as two I, separate discussions.
0: I think you know something in early in our conversation about Crime Story that really resonated with me is that the law has been so professionalized over decades and even centuries. You know, at the essence of what I'm trying to do and what was interesting, I think, to both of us was to, you know, put the law back in the hands of people and deprofessionalize the analysis of it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this whole phenomenon with Court TV and Dan Abrams site, where you've got lawyers that are experts in the common law and in cases and in criminal justice reform and procedure and so on. And um when you really look at it, the the narratives at the heart of these things are ultimately very relatable and they're either servicing this power structure that you know exists and, and the same is true in politics as well. And yet we leave the coverage of the courts to professionals, whereas politics, everybody chimes. Right. You know well it's it's
1: it's funny because you know when I was in the in the in the American history business one of my big interests is that there's this movement there, there's a whole movement for the professionalization of law enforcement and the law in the late 19th century and this is part of something that goes even past a movement of professionalization in American culture and society and government uh, you know 150 years ago something like uh, you know more or less and one of the things there is, a, a very concerted plan to transform juries from a group of people where, you know, you make your argument, will you know, prosecutors make argument, defense, defense attorneys make their argument. And we're just going to get, and then we're just going to hand it over to these 12 people and they make the call. And there's this, there is this movement to say, okay, a little, little different from that. We are going to make all of these legal decisions and then define pretty narrow yes-no questions that you can answer. And you see that where, where in a lot of cases where jurors are saying, well, are we allowed to to make this decision? Are we allowed to do this, allowed to do that? That's not really the original concept. I mean, there's a reason why you have people who come in with no expertise at all who make the final decision. It's It is meant to be a deprofessionalized process. And that's why... I've always been a big defender of the concept of jury nullification. And, and there, again, there's been this, the reason we call it jury nullification is there's this big movement to say, okay, it's not really up to you what happens here. We're going to define a set of factual questions that we'll let you answer. But really, jury can do whatever the hell it wants. And, and there's this kind of secret in the, in, the, in the legal system that that's still the case. But there's a big thing where the judge is usually instructed to tell the jury, "You can't, you can't do this." In fact, the jury can still do whatever it wants. And I thought of this because one of your colleagues on this project is this guy Paul Butler, right? Who is he, he's at Georgetown, right? He's at Georgetown Law School. Okay, yeah. Georgetown yeah. Law School, and he's a big Kate's alma mater. Just for, yeah, uh, there instance. you go, there RSI, you go, so
3: baby. Yeah, <laughs> uh,
0: it, I'm, I'm a.
1: Law, on the you're law, on the on the board yeah, I'm on a the eighty
0: nine
3: grant too but you're
1: like on the you're like on
0: the board um, of visitors yeah. or regents or yeah, board of visitors at,
1: of Georgetown Law Center yeah yeah cool
3: yeah baby. all right
1: so we're gonna <laughs> well, okay so Paul Butler a, a a former prosecutor a very respected law professor but a big voice in the in in the in the, in the criminal justice reform thing, and if I'm remembering right, he has long been a big jury nullification guy, making the case that it is a proper thing and should happen more, basically.
0: Yep. And what's interesting about it is you can't advocate for jury nullification on a particular case. You can't- As in the the lawyer, as the defense lawyer, basically. As a defense lawyer or even as you got to be careful doing it as a representative of the media. You can you can actually really so not yeah, just a
1: matter of if you're a member yeah, of the bar.
0: Yeah, you can't target jurors or potential jurors in a case. And tell them you know you have jury nullification as an option. You can't do. You can go to jail for doing that. There's a, a pastor. Really? Yeah, there's a pastor who went to jail. Is that defined as like, jury tampering? Obs- yeah, obstruction of justice, jury tampering. And oh, there's I a pastor that. that went to jail for a lot. Like he got a, a fairly hefty sentence for handing out leaflets outside a courtroom about jury nullification, targeted towards a specific case. The leaflets didn't target a specific case, but, but he, he had targeted, in his mind right, right, right. targeting a specific case. Huh. And um, I didn't. I didn't, I, yeah, I, th- I thought you were going to say that,
1: like if you're a member of the bar, you can't do it or something no, like that.
0: No, I mean it's it, it, you know so, and the court, the courts really enforce these laws, even though they're on the fringe of being kind of unconstitutional. Um,
1: Well, the, 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 uh, the funny thing is there is that we shouldn't, you know, we should recognize that there's a negative side, you know, all white jury, you know, w- right. look, looks at a case, uh, white person killing a black person, just says, you know what, we don't want to convict. I mean, obviously, there's definitely a downside to it. Yeah, you know, I mean, in, in, in variety, and you can think of lots of cases ma- of like, hey, that person should go to jail.
0: Many people, we're going to, I guess we're going to talk a bit about OJ in a little mm-hmm. bit, but many people feel that OJ was a case of jury nullification. That many jurors believe that he may well have been involved in it, but there were other factors that they brought to bear and, decided to make a statement. And, you know, some would argue that that red state senators are engaged in jury nullification in the impeachment trial.
1: One of the things I want to talk about is is Bill Barr, the attorney general, has been on the the sort of the the outer ring of this scandal. And it's always been a little unclear, like, and I'm talking about the Ukraine scandal here. Um, what his involvement is, he's but he's been a huge player. And what has he been attorney general for like a year? About, about, about exactly sounds a, about right. Yeah, a year now. Um, and you interviewed him. Yeah, and well, tell us about it. this was the kind of first big interview, a crime story, interviewing. Yes. Uh, Bill Yeah, so
0: um, I worked at HBO for 25 years, and part of my responsibility during the last decade of my work there was I oversaw the programming that HBO did for Cinemax. Cinemax was another pay channel, is another pay channel that HBO owned, and I started doing original shows for Cinemax. One of those shows was a show called Banshee. Um, very violent, pulpy show um, about a, a cop who uh, or about a guy who gets out of prison, goes to find his former lover who's in this small town. And through a series of circumstances, the brand new sheriff that nobody knows in the town dies in a bar fight. This guy is present. He assumes the identity of the sheriff. And he becomes this ex-con who's been in jail for 15 years, assumes it becomes the sheriff of this town. Who, who is the actor? Just remind uh, me. A guy named Anthony Starr. Okay. Um, and um, Barr was a huge fan of the show as a member of the board of time Warner and I was introduced to him at a dinner and the CEO of HBO at the time Richard So Time Warner owns
1: HBO uh, yeah. Bill Barr is on the board so he's okay yes. I didn't actually yeah. know I didn't know that but that's
0: interesting And um and yeah and there's aspects of the um of the whole AT&T merger that um you know story for another time Um but um but the CEO at the time, Richard Plepler, suggested that Barr that I escort Barr down to North Carolina where we were shooting the show. And so we took the Time Warner jet and we flew down there for a day. And I you know, he sat with watched the filming and then he sat with the actors and the director. And this is what, like
1: five or six years ago? More, yeah. more or less. Yeah. Than that. yeah.
0: yeah. Maybe even less, like four. Like right. it was really fairly recently when right. I mean, you think about it. And, um, and he just really enjoyed it. And so as I was starting Crime Story, I, I called you and I said, you know, he, he sent me a really appreciative letter. My brother, who runs the Miller Center, the, the uh, policy center at UVA that focuses on the presidency, um, actually met with Barr afterwards, and he's given two oral testimonies to the Miller Center as part of his work from previous administrations. And so we we had a friendly relationship, and I I asked you what you thought of. It was, a, it was a good idea for me to reach out to him. I sent him an email. I sent him an email, and an hour later, the news emerged that Mueller's report was on his desk. <laughs> and I was like, I'll never hear back from him. I sent it to his personal address. I said, never hear back from him. And an hour after that, I got an email back from Barr saying... Yeah, I didn't realize you'd left HBO, Carrie. I'd be happy to do it. I'm a little under the gun right now, (laughs) but I'd be happy to do it. I remember when
1: you told me that email, I uh, had a moment of like warming to him. Like, okay, (laughs) he got a sense of humor. Sure, yeah.
0: And in the email, what I focused on was um, the first step act had just passed the the Christmas before. um, And uh, I focused on two things. Criminal justice reform. And remind us what the First Step Act is. The First Step Act was an effort, a bipartisan effort, to um, look at uh, revisiting sentencing uh, of, of criminals and a general criminal justice reform package that was put together by progressives and li- progressive Democrats and libertarian Republicans To help get people out of jail and begin to address decarcerating America, and um, and so I I emailed uh, in my email to Barr, I said, "Look, I you know I I know that we probably disagree on a lot politically, but I think you know I'd like to discuss this, the First Step Act, and I'd also like to discuss." narrative in popular culture about justice because you're a fan of banshee there's a lot of kind of themes of justice and notions of justice in banshee so um, i said those are the two areas i want to talk about i you know implying i don't really i don't want to talk about we're not going to talk about muller right yeah, right, whatever, right. like and he and so there was a bit of a back and forth and um and, uh, and finally, that was in April. And then in June, I emailed him saying I was going to be in the DC area. Um, could we meet? And he emailed me back and he said, Yeah, I can make time for you. Just work it out with my secretary. Mm-hmm. And so I did. And in fact, I was in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I, was, I drove up on a, on a Wednesday. And in Culpeper, Virginia, I got stopped by a cop for speeding. <laughs> and I was like going 60 and a 50. And I, I, liked, I, I, I was like, should I? Yeah. <laughs> and I pulled out the email. And I showed the cop the email. This is where I'm going. I just was a little confused. Oh, to actually, the Bill Barr email? Like- the, the Bill Barr email. <laughs> and the white cop in Culpeper, Virginia, let me off. And so that was my use of white privilege right there. Um, anyway, so I went to, uh, went to visit, uh, sat down with him, and um, in prepping for the interview, I had um, several conversations with Paul Butler. I'd known Paul through my work at Georgetown— when i was at hbo i worked on a show called the night of a miniseries with john turturro great okay. show the night of and um that was written by steve zalian and uh, academy award nominee for the irishman he he wrote and directed the night of and it was also written by richard price famous uh novelist wrote clockers also wrote on the wire writes on this new hbo show the outsiders um, And we did a symposium at Georgetown with the two writers of the show uh, and four Georgetown law professors, including Butler. And uh, that was really my first extensive interaction with Paul. And he was just amazing, I found. And his ability to talk about the criminal legal process, particularly as it impacts people of color, I thought was profoundly on point. And so um, I, I had a couple of conversations with him, particularly as I was getting ready to start the site about his potential involvement in it. And then when this came up, I told him about it. And uh, he was extremely helpful and generous with his time and just helping me zero in on what I should ask. And he brought to my attention that Barr was at the heart of the planning of the increase in building prisons and imprisoning people as part of the war on drugs that that was he wrote the paper on it and although most of the increase happened during the clinton administration mm-hmm. and um there's a you know a whole complex um uh history of how that happened but barr was in many ways the architect of our carceral state where we, we have an, we had an increase over the course of 25 years um, of five times the number of prisoners uh, in, this, in, in the United States. And so we've gone from having 5% of the world's prisoners and 5% of the world's population to having f- 25% of the world's prisoners and 5% of the world's population. And um, so Paul helped me prepare the questions that I, w- I asked him. Um, and uh, I went in and talked to him about what his feelings were about criminal justice reform, um, what his how his views had changed, or whether they changed. And you can hear the the interview on 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 our podcast and on our net on our platform on our website. Um, but I also asked him about and like he,
1: and, and just for the podcast, like they could go onto iTunes and, and search yeah. Crime Story and it would pop up. Yeah. and they can find it. Yeah,
0: Crime Story, the the Crime Story podcast, Carrie Anthola's like, because there's a lot of Crime Story right, stuff right, out there. Right, right, right. Um, right. But uh, um, but the other thing that I asked him about was justice as a theme in popular culture and. He asked me to pause the recording for a second. What, like, what are you getting at here? And I said, you know, well, like Dirty Harry, there's themes of justice there. He goes, oh, okay, I got you. And so he had a whole spiel on on justice and the idea of justice and justice as a process. And um, Butler, in helping me deconstruct the interview afterwards... Zeroed in on this notion of bar as in with a very instrumentalist view of justice. Justice is a tool for him, and when you look at when you look at his perspective on the the way that he's used his office on behalf of the Trump administration, when it comes to dealing with kind of tough on crime policy he's, you know, he's using justice as a cudgel. Um, When it comes to dealing with executive power, he's using justice as a defensive tool. And so, you know, there's an inconsistency there, but it's not an inconsistency if you have an instrumentalist view of, of the office
1: you know? well tell us because in in that interview i want to get a, l- a little more specific because he talks about this show banshee yep and so in that and that i think that illustrates it a little more so get it tell us well, about it, that part it, of
0: it you know it's banshee banshee was a kind of a hit cult show and it, it had at the heart of it this guy who's pretending to be a cop um, essentially executing justice on a way that you know was um was fair to him seemed fair to him you know it wasn't about enforcing the law or it process was a, or kind of e- yeah it ex- was equitable. it was yeah. Yeah, it yeah. was about just doing what seemed right you know making sure bad people were put away and good people were protected
3: so like Robin Hood-esque kind of thing yeah or
0: or Dirty Harry-esque okay. in 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 certain ways um but there was
1: also well there's also can i can i say one thing there that there's a, there's an aspect of this and you see this in 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 cinematic representations of crime that there is a certain vision of justice which is not which is certainly not adjudicative it's more like look there's bad people and there's good people and the bad people need to be hit and the good people need to be protected and like whether the bad person has committed this particular particular crime is not really the issue it's the bad people need to be punished and you kind of right and you see that coming out in a lot of it sounds like that's that's his thing
0: yeah i mean one other kind of one other um bit of a a, a, um, digression but there's this whole ukrainian mobster component to banshee (laughs) that like you know comes up periodically and it, it it it's kind of coincidental or not um but um one of the things Barr cites in the course of the interview is in a dirty harry movie there is a scene where someone a woman's been kidnapped dirty harry's trying to find out where she is um he's got uh one of the perpetrators under gunpoint um the perpetrator laughs and sneers in his face when he's asked where is she and dirty harry shoots him in the leg, and the perpetrator tells him where she is.
1: And isn't the point that the perpetrator is basically saying, you know, you're the cops, you're restrained by law, you're not going to shoot me, and, and implicitly, Dirty Harry's response is like, no, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm justice, in that, in that sense of justice, I'll shoot you, maybe I'll shoot you in the head, so you can't be, you're not going to, you can't hide behind fairness with me, right. I'm not constrained by that.
0: Exactly and Barr pointed to that as an expression of justice that touches people on some visceral level and you know I did that I did that interview in June but it didn't I didn't launch the site until August so it you know it was released in August and two days after that the Epstein died in prison and so people who were who had listened to the interview um all of a sudden we're like wait a minute what's <laughs> going on here you <laughs> yeah know? yeah yeah um but but they were temporarily very distant from one another but you know when you think about justice as in kind of from as an instrumentalist tool the epstein suicide becomes you know all, all the more
2: questionable right just for the interest of time i know Kerry, you were talking about how this... Is it this weekend? Is the 25th anniversary of the OJ?
0: Yeah, the beginning of the OJ trial beginning was of the OJ trial. January twi- 25th, uh, uh, 1995. It's
2: interesting. As a um, somewhat young person, uh, the OJ trial, I think, was kind of the first news event that I remember. I want to say I was in, like, second grade. I was probably, like, eight or nine years old. And um, talking with friends, like, on the playground or something, like, oh, did he do it or is he guilty? Um, Not knowing really almost anything about the facts of the case but it was such a moment that it broke through even to like a child you know it was a it
1: was a I mean OJ I mean now OJ is OJ right killed his wife got away with it then sort of karmically I think had the book thrown at him kind of unfairly for something totally unrelated but sort of going back to justice <laughs> right. like kind of like you know right. you don't totally get away with it right, right. Um, but again for, for me and I think this is probably the case but he's
0: out now like, right, but he yeah. was in well, later, was yeah, he in yeah. for
1: four or five, like six, yeah. or six or seven. I mean, a signet. Uh,
0: more, yeah, more than, even, probably more than that. Wasn't it like more eight, recent? Eight, eight, nine years. More recently,
2: like, it was tax? No, it was, or it no, was this was bizarre a, thing a th- that was technically... He was, like theft? Was, or?
0: He was recovering memorabilia right. that he believed had been stolen and was being sold right. on a marketplace. And he was in a room and somebody had a gun. And so he was charged with robbery and they threw the book at him. And it was one of these things where his... It
2: was like his a
1: second de-
0: bite at the apple.
2: His kind of defense
0: thing. was
1: pretty legit. I mean, it it was. It, it seemed like the people probably had stolen something from him, and that he was getting it back. Someone else had a gun, so it was a. It's a good. The second case is a good example of this too, because I think there's a pretty good case, a, a pretty good argument. That if you isolate the second case, look at it purely on the merits, he got kind of railroaded for yeah. that. But obviously the backdrop is, yeah. look, you got away <laughs> with killing your wife and that other dude. So like, you know, yeah. so, what goes around comes around.
0: So so next week uh, on Crime Story, I am presenting um, two sets of interviews, one with the guys who wrote The People versus O.J. Simpson the miniseries that was on FX with John Travolta and others, and also an interview that I did with Ezra Edelman, who uh, produced and directed O.J. Made in America, the ESPN documentary, 10-hour opus on it. Um, And it's, you know, I find it really interesting with, you know, 25 years of history behind us since the trial and with a few years since those projects came out, to look at the way that those two... Sets of those two teams of filmmakers approached telling this iconically American story, and then um, tomorrow I'm going to do an interview with Bill Hodgman, one of the prosecutors on the case, and get his view. Now, what was his role?
1: Because we know about uh, Marsha Clark and and the and, Chris, the, Darden, and yeah. Chris Darden as they were the sort of the faces. Where does who? Where does this H- guy fit Hodgman?
0: In? Hodgman was hodgman was kind of behind the scenes a very effective prosecutor um and were they reporting to
1: him is that the sort of the relationship um
0: i it's a little little more vague than that but yeah uh, involved involved, involved. yeah and and what i want to and and he was really instrumental in ezra edelman's understanding Of what happened, and is the documentary? Yeah, the documentary. And and if you if you watch the documentary towards the end of the film, Hodgman helps take us through what the the probably the most compelling theory of what happened. Um, Certainly, the theory that Edelman ultimately adopts is factually
1: how the crime went down, basically. Yes,
0: based on crime scene photos and uh, a lot of the physical evidence. Um, in any event, what I want to talk to Hodgman about is his views of the way the media covered the trial and both of these, these pieces of cultural history now and how, what you know, how as someone who lived through it, how he sees the media representations and the way that history will remember these trials. Um, because I, I find that, you know, the difference between the experience of people who lived through these histories... And through these crimes, or through these crime stories, and the way that history remembers these things is an interesting te- has an interesting tension. Well,
3: yeah, that's occurred to me. We we're talking a little bit off air, and Josh, you mentioned um, the figure that OJ was before the crime—you know, the football player or the likable actor and charismatic,
2: everything. yeah,
3: right. And you know, I was, I think, three months old when the trial <laughs> started, so I've only you know, learned about OJ in any kind of specific way. Honestly, I remember I learned about the car chase for the first time in one of my like college TV classes and stuff like that. So to me, it's so interesting hearing that there was any kind of
1: A pre-story to OJ sort of Right.
3: That for sure. But also any kind of internal grappling with the figure that he was with the crime he was accused of any any push and pull in that at all is like really interesting to me cuz i didn't know anything about pre-trial oj so to me just looking back on it i'm like well duh it seems pretty obvious that he was guilty and like you know i watched a cnn documentary episode that uh, focused on it and you know the f- kind of frenzy around it and the people who were so you know, dead set on advocating for his innocence and stuff. Just in retrospect, at least to me, is you're just like, like what bizarre. are you talking about? <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> right.
1: Well, I, I I would say I, I was just now I was trying to think of who today is would be comparable, you know, to an OJ figure. The way as a child I saw him in like the seventies and eighties, and and look clearly there Derek, is, Derek Jeter,
0: Michael yeah, Jordan, yeah, someone
1: exactly mm. someone like that. Although I think the the additional thing is not only was OJ a sports superstar, and I mean look there's a there is a a obvious big race component to this. I'm a white kid um, growing up, and and OJ is sort of. In that, OJ was part of the first generation of African American sports stars who went beyond simply being sports stars to sort of popular culture superstars.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, every you know, OJ is everybody's path. You know, all that, all that kind of thing. You could say like. Sorry to interrupt, no, just no. like LeBron James maybe is an example of that. Sort of a fashion icon, does some kind of social good work kind yeah, of Yeah, like everybody loves him. Huge I mean, celebrity. And, and I think, and again,
1: what uh, I think an additional thing is, is that he, he went from being an NFL star to, to not just doing like a couple cameos. He, he became a big movie star. Right. You know, and... and the, the Naked
0: I, Gun movie, Naked Gun, and even...
1: Four, wasn't he in like Capricorn One or something? Like, yep. You know, yep. So, and, and so everybody... Uh, it, this has happened a few times sports stars go on and, and you know, don't just kind of do a little cameo, but actually transition to, to, to you know, doing that. And everybody kind of likes that. Like, oh, awesome, you know, funny, all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, there was... There,
0: there, um, he was also... And and Ezra's documentary gets into this in a really big way. He He was at the forefront of deracializing... Himself, Yeah. And, you know, there's this part of the documentary where they go into um, how Jim Brown and a group of other activist athletes went to OJ and tried to get him to be supportive of civil rights issues. And
1: just, just for listeners who maybe don't know the sort of the NFL deep backstory, Jim Brown.
0: Jim Brown was like the OJ before OJ. Right, right. He was a running back uh, for the Cleveland Browns. Yeah. And was the superstar, and OJ broke his rushing record in the NFL um, when he ran for over two thousand yards, the first in NFL history to do that. Um, And and um, you know you know when Muhammad Ali was controversial and um, and uh, um, chose not to uh, submit to the draft. People like Brown and Martin Luther King and people, you know, were, were looking for O.J. to become political. And O.J. eschewed that. O.J. didn't want any part of that. And, and Jim Brown was a
1: very political figure when he was in the NFL and for long after. I mean, ironically, he's now like butts with Trump, sort of like, which is bizarre. But that's another story. But anyway, OK, so O.J., you know, not my problem. Right. I'm not, I'm just, I'm just, OJ. yeah, that and, quote, like, I'm not black, I'm OJ. Yeah. And, right.
0: And, um, and, and then, and this was right around the time of the Mexico City Olympics where the athletes stood on the podium and raised a fist in the air. And, um, and then, you know, the kind of full circle moment of all of this is um, OJ's team used the race card, as Robert Shapiro put it. Um O.J. became a kind of focal point for police mistreatment of African Americans in Los Angeles. And at the end of the trial, after O.J. was acquitted, he looked at the jury and he raised the fist that the same the the same fist that the athletes raised in Mexico City. And the, it, the,
1: symbolically, he would have no part of uh, thir- what would that have been like yeah, twenty third, year twenty thirty twenty five years earlier than that. Now fifty years ago, right.
0: Um, so, yeah, so and, and um, I, it's, you know, to bring this sort of back to impeachment, um, OJ, you know, cynically played to legitimate grievances that African Americans, particularly in Los Angeles, had about the way that the police treated them, similar in, in a fashion that's similar to the cynical way that, at least in my view, Trump plays to grievances that that red state america has about the way that the economy treats them the way that capitalism treats them it's it's,
1: it's uh it, it it's it's interesting that you know that is such an it's such an iconic thing the oj trial and everything that came out of it but there's there's even these i mean the kardashians you know, Kim Kardashian's dad, Is it Robert Robert, Car- Robert Kardashian, was was OJ's like longtime bud. Um, he actually passed away uh, very sadly as a as a you know pretty pretty young man, not that long after. Um, but there was we that was the first appearance of. The Kardashians in 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 anyth- anything anybody yep. knew anything about, and, you and, know, and there's and, all these things like that, these and, other things that sprouted off in yeah. different directions. And
0: interestingly, kind of tying it back to the criminal justice reform movement, um, Kim Kardashian has become a very effective and and you know it brings snickers, but I, I'm I am stunned I, I, by how I, effective I, she's been mm-hmm. as an advocate and how sincere this. That her efforts are.
3: Yeah, I think that second point especially, because, you know, so many people are eager to pillory her and the family and everything. And, you know, when uh, it came out in some kind of way that she was interested in going to law school and everything, and that got pilloried as well. And you're like, what are other celebrities doing? Yeah, you sure. know, it's like her husband, well, Kanye, came into the office and <laughs> gave some, like, unhinged performance. And it's you know?
1: also, I, I, I completely, I mean, look, n- n- no one is more... You know, I don't. I don't care about Kim Kardashian. Like, I don't. I don't. I don't. Negative, positive. But she. She certainly before this has represented everything that is fluffiest mm-hmm. in our in our popular culture. Even that. Even that sort of basic concept of being famous for being famous for being famous. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. So and yet, this isn't like a one off. It's not like one person she wanted to get out of prison or kind of like she was into it for a month. She has kept at it. Yep. And she and she even if she's sort of, you know, inveigling herself into Trump's world uh, to to help push this along. He's president. And, and, and I completely agree. I give her credit. This is like as as ridiculous as as you may think she is, as ridiculous as she is. You know, she, she's accomplished. This is a thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: She she was speaking to the press the other day. Uh, she's got a documentary coming up on Oxygen in April about criminal justice reform, going to prisons, and she said something that I found really touching. She's raising four black children, and she sees the way that law enforcement treats black kids, particularly, and she anything she can do to protect her children or her friends from that kind of treatment. She'll do. And that, man, that resonated with Mm me.
1: Yeah. And and to me, again, it's sort of like a lot of stars do, you know, they go to an event or, you know, they're big on Twitter. You know, I, I, I cannot not respect her dedication to this yep. and you know give her yeah, and give she's her seen her it due. through
0: she's she's actually not going to law school she's stu- there's a there's a pathway to becoming a lawyer to passing the bar where you can do a, a period of internship it's kind of a harkens back to the kind of the, the that early, used to be a yeah. way
1: people actually a lot of people became lawyers yeah you just intern in a law firm and then you take the bar
0: yeah and so mm-hmm. she's on a there's a very prescribed path of interning studying taking tests along the way um, and then ultimately passing the bar.
3: That also makes more sense logistically. I was like, how in the world does Kim Kardashian go to law school? Isn't
1: it the case? I think, and my understanding has always been that this is even more, sort of the more prestigious law school you go to, that everybody I know who, who... has gone anywhere to law school, but particular people who go into like Harvard law school, Yale law school that you get out of that, you may have learned a lot, but you've learned almost nothing for actually being a a lawyer in the sense of, you know, adjudicating care, you know, being someone's lawyer. And you almost, the whole uh, bar exam thing is that's when you actually learn how to do the nuts and bolts of, of being a lawyer. So it's, so it's not that surprising that you could not go to law school and just sort of learn on the job, and then pass the bar. Yep, they're kind of un- almost right. unrelated, particularly at the more kind of elite law school yeah.
2: level. So, in the few minutes we have left, maybe we can just end on the impeachment trial, Carrie. I'm curious, like, what you're following in it as a longtime kind of legal observer and someone who's working on um, on the site that you're that you're working on. Is there anything that's stuck out to you? Anything that surprised you so far? We're only a few days into the trial, but can I mention one thing? Is that Carrie? I, I assume you're probably not.
1: Maybe your law license isn't up to date, but you are a lawyer.
0: I am. And I I, uh, I'm, I remain a member of the D.C., New York, and New Jersey bars, but as a retired mm-hmm. lawyer. Right, right. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I tend to go to my brother for information on impeachment because— he oversees this policy center that focuses on the presidency, and he actually wrote a piece about impeachment for the site. Um, so, I, you know, I've kind of been looking at it that way. I've also been, um, you know, you know, like everyone, wondering if Bolton is going to testify and wondering if there's a, you know, going to be a groundswell. But the more that I watch it, whether there's going to be a groundswell of enough republican senators to vote for witnesses but it you know the more that i follow it the more i kind of despair that it's just going to devolve into partisan you know politics and a critical mass of you know moderate republican quote-unquote moderate republican senators are going to vote for no witnesses and it's going to
2: it's going to be over we've all obviously been involved in the kind of like nitty-gritty moment-to-moment thing so maybe we don't have quite the 30,000 feet view that maybe someone like you would have but um It does feel like it's probably going to be over next week, and there won't be witnesses, and that's kind of that, right? Even Trump's legal team, CNN, reported last night that they're not planning on using all three days available to them, with the 24 hours to make opening arguments, probably like two days. And I'm not sure if that includes this Saturday, which is tomorrow, the day after we're recording this. Um, They're only going to go a few hours, I think. That's the plan. They don't want to present too much of their argument on a weekend day when No no one's quite glued to the the senate tv cameras but um. i was actually wondering just as a sort of a factual matter
1: the 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 parts that we saw on that first day when they were talking about the resolute, you know the rules for the trial i, I don't know if they could fill up 3 days because their arguments really seem to be a mix of sort of outrage um, witch hunt uh, you know we we weren't allowed in the skiff and and just factually it's hard to know what you... I mean, they don't have a lot of... There aren't a lot of facts they can they can contest. Um, they can just declare that it's not impeachable, and I guess we're going to get Dershowitz to go up right. and say that. But yeah, I mean, this is... It is an, it is an imbalanced thing because everybody will agree, even Trump's stoutest defenders will agree, that the managers have a lot of details to go into. There's
2: a lot of information. Even like Lindsey Graham was like, Shaking hands with yeah. Good job, good job, you know, dude. Very yeah. well spoken. Doing a good job laying out the case in a in an effective way. So well, you know, there was
1: a a, a Manu Raju who uh, he was CNN. Yes, right? yeah, CNN. A great reporter that you know, kind of very highly respected. Used to be with Politico, covers Capitol Hill, and he did a a hit on CNN yesterday about this question of witnesses, and he made a point that I think is a hundred percent true that this is not going to be. Four senators say, No, you know, seen enough. I got to see the witnesses. That's not going to happen. If it happens, it's going to be like eight or nine senators because no one is going to allow, like, Cory Gardner to be the guy who's like, you know, I wanted to do, got to do witnesses and him be the guy. Yeah, you don't want to be the deciding vote. There's no way that that they're going to let that be focused in on one person.
2: And is it, I mean, John McCain, obviously, speaking of deciding votes, John McCain famously, you know, gave the thumbs down on the Obamacare repeal. I guess he was at that point not running for reelection, right? He was kind of in the twilight of his career. Well, I think it was
1: clear he was terminally ill at that point. And and I think he he had just... um, I think not long before he became sick, he had actually won re election again, I think. So, there was no election anywhere, you know, yeah. th- th- that was just not a, an issue. And obviously, he was. Um, you know, he was he was uh, one of the few who was not, you know, he had bucked Trump right. on, a, on, a, right. on a few. But you're right. Fronts. If you're
2: if you're up for reelection in 2020, you're Susan Collins, you're Cory Gardner or Joni Ernst. You're not wanting to go home to your district and be like, yep, I'm the guy who kind of fucked over Trump on witnesses. Well,
3: I mean, and also the primary person to watch, of course, is Mitch McConnell. And McConnell doesn't want another Obama repeal on his hands where our Obamacare repeal where, you know, all the scrutiny is on one or two people to see, And then that creates a narrative of they buck Trump, they buck the Republicans, they bucked McConnell. Whereas if it's a, the critical mass, like you say, McConnell can paint it as like, you know, we discussed, we talked about it. You know, we want a fair trial, too. So,
1: Well, that was what, you know, in that whatever happened in that thing where they he shifted the rules, mm-hmm. that's how it's going to be dealt with. Right. Where they didn't, you know, we didn't know what the exact internal thing was. A- and it, leg- legislators always want safety in numbers mm-hmm. and hiddenness in numbers. And that's really the key here, that, that, that if... If they decide, like if 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 a if a Corey Gardner guy or Jonier say like, hey, I can't weather this, mm-hmm. can't, I'm not going to be able to, then they're all going to go and just kind of do it as a you know a, a do it as a group. But that is really on both sides. That's the issue because like, are you hearing a lot about Corey Gardner? I'm not. Which is a which you know, the there's only, only so much they can do. But that's a that's a mistake because that's really what this is about. This isn't about the Republican caucus. Right. right. It's about him. It's about Joni Ernst. It's really about uh, McSally McSally, in
2: in Arizona. It's up to them. The only one who sort of seems to be breaking through as people are paying attention or focusing on is Politico had a story last night. Like Lamar Alexander is sort of the one to actually watch. He's retiring, right? He's he's kept his cards very close to the vest. But um, I don't know. There's some thought maybe he'd be someone who could kind of come to the side of wanting witnesses.
3: Isn't the idea there that he's somewhat of an institutionalist, yeah. or at least that's the lip service idea? That's the
1: lip service. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I,
3: I, I, but he's
0: also very close to McConnell, and yeah. he, you know, right. Um, I, I have one question for you guys before we wrap it up. Um, on December 29th, um, the CNN reported that, oh, well, um, Moscow reported that. Uh, Trump and Putin had had a conversation, uh, either on that morning or the night before, the 28th. And um, I, you know, in the in the wake of, the, and and the report was that Putin called Trump to thank him for information right. that. That uh, Supposedly the, like counterterrorism information Yes, or the, tip the, off or the, there was a tip-off about a New Year's Eve terrorist attack that was planned for St. Petersburg that the United States informed Russia about they arrested two people uh, The Soleimani hit happened a few days after that and I've never heard anyone ask Trump or the White House whether Trump tipped off Putin to the fact that he was going to hit Soleimani, because I think he'd made the decision by then, right? or he was formulating the decision by then. And in the way that we tipped off Russia before we hit um, the Syrian- uh, well, ba- yeah. Baghdadi. but the-, the, 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 the I, I don't know about Baghdadi, but the Syrian, when we did the missile strikes on Syria- Oh, right, 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 right. After, yeah. um, after the, the, the gas attack- um, and I mean, it would be explosive if. and and Putin, you know, Putin uh, or Lavrov, you know, we, we, they expressed surprise about the hit and, and outrage. but they also helped fashion a pathway to de-escalation. And I wonder whether, in kind of mob fashion, Trump tipped off Putin to the fact that he was going to do this um and i i'd love i'd love for somebody to ask the white house whether there was any conversation of that
1: you know it's always been the, the whole thing with the ukraine story the biggest deal about it to me has always been that it shows that the craziest thing could well have happened and no one would have said anything we wouldn't have found out about it so any so in before that when all these things happened, like oh he he talked with putin in helsinki and he had this phone call and you always say like okay maybe maybe it's bad news between the two of them but they're not really going to talk about like oh man like you know do this do that but i think what the ukraine thing told us is like sure of course probably did and no one would have said anything about it because because he no one will you know no one will say no no one will out him
0: um and especially it seems that that call was held very close to the vest in the White House Mm -hmm. um, because the the White House didn't confirm the fact that the call even happened until 24 hours after Russia announced that it happened.
1: Right, right, right. I mean, the one thing I will add here is that in, in Syria, they have this thing called a deconfliction protocol, which is, believe me, something you want to have, because the idea is the Russian military and the U.S. military are both operating in the same national space. You don't want them to accidentally to bump into each other and, and things to, you know, get out of hand. So you have this protocol to, you know, kind of a, a phone line where you say, look, these coordinates, we're going to be operating here tomorrow not telling you what we're doing but like we're going to be here so don't don't have someone there don't have a plane you know that kind of thing just to make sure that there's no accidents so it's possible to see the Syria thing in that light and again that is legitimate it predates Trump that doesn't mean it's all it was and obviously this happened in Iraq where Russia is not on the ground so it would be it would be different there would there would there wouldn't be the same um there wouldn't be the same rationale or the same line of communications for a kind of a limited heads up to just, you know, don't don't be there when we're there. Uh, but again, what the Ukraine thing tells me is, you know, they, they might have talked about on the call about the Trump Hotel. And, 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 and it's not like anybody was going to say, OK, dude, you can't be talking
2: about the hotel and I'm going to. I got to leak this one, or I got to file a report. Yeah, and there's there's been reports, too. I mean, the Ukraine call was sort of locked down into this secure national security classified server, right? And I think there's been reporting that... It's not the only call that's been locked down like that. In fact, lots of them are kind of put in the, put in the safe, so to speak. And so Th- that, that's so, was
1: I was talking with someone about this and maybe e- emailing with some reader about this yesterday, that that is still the sort of the big thing that is has that kind of got forgotten about that. It was, a, you know, it was big very early in this scandal and got a lot of discussion for a short period of time. But it's been, again, you know, superseded by other things that this isn't the only call. That got locked down and you know sky's the limit that's always been the lesson of this scandal to me sky's the limit and that's actually what what i think adam schiff in that sort of uh, you know pre-closing argument was saying late last night or around ten thirty last night that um you know do you have any confidence you that can't you can't trust him you can't trust him. Right? That's yeah what he's though... anything can happen and he will he will totally do what is in his interest so if 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 Russia starts, you know, dumping emails again in six months, is he going to say, "Hey, cut it I can't, out. <laughs> You can't do that. Of course not. Yeah. Of course, he's not going to do that. He'll probably tell him to do that. Yeah. All right. Well, that seems like a good place to leave it. All right. So uh, let's remember that uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. If you're ready to try out Grady's and ditch your coffee shop, you can get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM or order Grady's on Amazon.com for next day delivery.
0: And um, you can find uh, Crime Story Podcast uh, on any of your podcast platforms. And you can find our website at crimestory.com.
2: Cool. Yeah, Carrie, great to have you. I think yeah. our, our readers will be super interested in, in what you guys are up to. So Absolutely. Good to have well, you. Thanks for coming. All right. In. Thank you. Later.